Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of September 24th, 2018. On this week's show, Jim Newell will be here to discuss Tiger Woods' first win back after five years in the not-winning golf tournament's wilderness. We'll also ask Sports Illustrated's longtime lead basketball writer, Lee Jenkins, why he took a job as the Los Angeles Clippers' executive director of research and identity, and also what an executive director of research and identity is supposed to do anyway. Finally, Jonathan Hawk will join us to talk about his new documentary, 14 Back, about the Red Sox, the Yankees, Bucky Dent, and their one-game playoff to decide the 1978 season. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Uh, you're excited about this uh, Yankees, oh, Yankees situation. Anything to relive my childhood, yes. All right, we will relive your childhood in but a few minutes. But first, let's talk golf. On Sunday in Atlanta, Tiger Woods won the Tour Championship by two shots over Billy Horschel. It was his first tournament victory in 1,876 days. That is a lot of days. Let's listen to what he said right after he made uh, the last putt on the 18th green. I, I just can't believe I, I pulled this off after, you know, what the season's gone through. And um, <laughs> just wanted to let that acclamation wash over us. Uh, what he's gone through includes four back surgeries and a lot of doubt including from himself, that he could ever play golf again, much less play at a high level and beat guys like Rory McIlroy and Justin Rose. And Jim Horschel. Even Billy Horschel. Billy Horschel. Actually the guy he beat. Um, Joining us now to discuss is Slate Politics and golf writer, Jim Newell. Hello, Jim. Hi. Congratulations. Thank you. I had a great weekend. Uh, I was not expecting it to, like... This was a great sports moment. I think we will all acknowledge that and not be cynical. Um, but you heard the emotion in Mr. Woods's voice. It felt emotional in a way that I hadn't been expecting. And I think that's because of the scene around 18 where the um, gallery, the fans just kind of stormed um, the green and followed him. And it was like a very like literal um, enactment of like everything that Tiger Woods has done for this sport, just like people just rushing in in a way that um, we didn't see when Tiger was out of the game. And like Tiger's back, fans are back. It like feels great. 
Yeah, I, I don't know if Tiger got advance notice that they were actually going to let everyone behind him because it seemed like he was trying to hot foot it a little bit past everyone. That's not like a normal thing that they happens. do it. I mean, I think they do it every year or usually at the at the British Open, but they don't do it at, at most tournaments. But, I mean, it was really cool that they did. Well, at most tournaments, you'd have like 100 people sort of slowly walking up the fairway <laughs> right. as opposed to 5,000. Right. If it's like Brooks Kepka, you'd have like seven people, right. you know, yeah. maybe pretending to be excited but they yeah. had they had the like bird's eye cam and you could just see the like crowd it was like scary it's a little scary <laughs> you were afraid for tiger it was well there were tiger. like there were like two cops there protecting him and they seemed like they really had their hands full um but he felt emotional i'm just curious like you're somebody who has been rooting for this you wrote a piece um, that we published before the tour championship about when is Tiger Woods ever going to win? Is it going to ever happen? Um, perfect timing. Um, but you're somebody who was wanting this to happen, rooting for this to happen. Like, how did it feel to you to finally see Tiger winning again? Uh, I was just very happy afterwards. I don't know. I wasn't screaming or crying or anything as I thought I might actually be, but I was just very, very happy. And I, I, it was, it was wonderful how boring it felt for most of yesterday. It, it sort of reminded me of, when he was at his peak, how boring the Sundays were with him because he would just have the lead and not let anyone get close to it. And that was just a very pleasant feeling throughout the day. There are a couple of, um, you know, he had a couple of bad holes, I think 15 and 16, where it looked like the nerves might finally mm-hmm. be catching up with him a little bit. And then it was, you know, not boring, and I didn't like that feeling. So, you know, it was, I think for me, it was when he, um, when he made that par putt on 17, about four feet. It was like yeah. then you could finally right. relax, two stroke lead, and enjoy going it. into the last hole. Well, yeah. it's like if you're a fan of a football team, you you want them in retrospect. Do you want them to have won a close and exciting game because that's more memorable? But as you're actually watching the game, you prefer a blowout. Like it's 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 more relaxing in the moment to win forty nine to nothing. It feels more like historically gratifying and memorable to win like twenty one to twenty on a last minute hail mary. The exciting day was Saturday when I happened to accidentally turn on the uh, the tournament and Tiger was in the process of birdieing six of the first seven holes. And that was nuts. I mean, I emailed both of you. Neither of you responded. <laughs> I think Jim didn't want to jinx it. Um, and I, I found myself rude. tweeting pictures of the TV screen that nobody was liking. Um, <laughs> but it was really kind of amazing. I mean, were you doing a, an uppercut fist pump a la Tiger? Yeah, when you of course were I was. That? Just in my living room. Yeah. Just uppercuts everywhere. Freaking out my cat, you know? Um yeah, that was really exciting. It, it also just the, the further out ahead he got, you know, in the middle of the tournament, the more nervous I got because if he then blew it afterwards, it would just be even more painful. Um, I think, you know, going back to what what we want out of Tiger, I think it would be, you know, we'll remember if he has victories here afterwards where he does edge it out on the last hole or something against competition. But I think this one he just needed to get one under his belt. I think, you know... Um, I was just happy that he could put one away, and then we can actually watch the more exciting ones down the road. Let's put this into some context. I mean, we had this conversation, what, two months ago about Tiger doing well. He did well the last two majors of the season. He's done well since then. Um, so it did feel inevitable in a way. But the back surgeries and what he's come up, what he's overcome, and I mean physically and golfingly and not the personal stuff from, from earlier, he looked, you know, he looked his age 
not the sort of the sculpt of his upper body, which is still Tiger, but, you know, he was wearing a black tee under his red shirt, which looked a little sort of middle-aged daddy. He was schwitzing like crazy. Yeah. Um, and I saw this, you know, you, you know, you're reading into this shit when you're watching athletes on TV, no matter what you do, but it felt like this was vulnerable middle-aged man doing something really remarkable, playing the best that he could play. Yeah, and I also... You know, if you look at what he's done in the last few weeks, he sort of has seemed to accept his age a little bit in that he's not trying to hit it as far as the longest players on tour anymore. He seemed like he cut back on his drive a little bit, and he's a lot more accurate now. I mean, yesterday in the first hole, Rory McIlroy hit it like 30 yards past him, which I think maybe earlier in the year might have uh, pissed Tiger off. But I think Tiger's in a good place with his game right now where he accepts not being the longest but being you know in the top half of distance and then just being really really good with his irons so I think this is a game that you know if he's not trying to kill it and he just um, accepts just putting it in play and then going from there I mean he could do this for for a pretty long time if his back doesn't collapse if yeah if he doesn't snap in half again which I fully expect to happen but with no medical reasoning but do you think the key moment of this season for him and I'm gonna like get this wrong and I'll allow Jim to make fun of me is um, just for the it seemed like for the first half of the year, maybe in the first two thirds of the year, he was driving the ball extremely inaccurately, and it just seemed like an innate part of his game. Like he never was drove the ball the straightest of anyone on tour, but this was just ridiculous. Like he wasn't hitting any fairways. Like even was in the final round of the PGA when he shot that sixty four. He was didn't hit any fairways on the front nine of the the final round. Um, but it seemed like he just made like a small equipment change and now he just drives the ball straight. Was it really as simple as an equipment change? Was it the notion that you said where it's like he was just trying to hit the ball too far before? And do you agree that that was the like key to this like well-rounded player that we're seeing now? Yeah, well, I think he put I mean, he put a new um, club head on that had a little bit more loft, which, you know, doesn't encourage as much. Uh, spraying out left either to the left or right. So I think that helped. But yeah, he also, you know, he said when I went up there for the tournament a couple weeks ago, he was saying this new swing uh, and this new, he put a new shaft on it too, allows him to swing less hard and get similar if a little bit less distance. So, I mean, that was really all it was. If you, you know, the first few playoff events he was putting in play, but then he wasn't making any putts. Now he made putts and, you know, he had an easy win. Yeah. Let's talk about Jim's piece, Stefan, that he wrote from the BMW Championship outside Philly a couple couple weeks ago. We sent you there because we wanted um, just like a close-up perspective of this comeback attempt, which was not uh, successful up to that point. But I thought the best stuff, the most interesting stuff was like, you get to be inside the ropes this tournament. I think maybe people don't appreciate that who aren't familiar with how like golf media works. But like, if you're credentialed, you get to like stand really close to these guys and really like hear them and see them and also see and hear the crowd and have this really fantastic perspective. Like, what do you feel like you were able to glean from that that you hadn't been able to see um, on television? Uh, just from a technical perspective is just watching the the flight of the shots. I mean, they all – it was just amazing how they all have these, like, perfectly maximized ball flights and their drives. Like, they all go up the same amount almost and then fall. It's just, like, it's – there's a lot of testing that's gone into getting it there. Um, but also, you know, from a fan perspective, just the amount of 
crap Tiger is hearing the entire round. Just, I mean, every single shout. And then you you think that he's been doing this for 20 years and it's been like this for 20 years. Like, it's just, you know, sometimes you would hear a lone voice say something and wonder how he doesn't acknowledge it. It's because he has a lot of practice just ignoring that entirely. Um, and yet at the same point, recognizing that, like, this is fueling him somehow, all of this energy, seeing him come back at 42. Like, he's he's channeling all of this, even if he's not acknowledging it all while he's playing. Which raises the question that I think surrounds Tiger and always has, which is, beyond the greatness, why are we attracted to him? I mean, why do you like him? Why do we still want to see him succeed despite the personal life dumpster fires and the surgeries and the fact that, hey, this was a great athlete who did amazing things in his 20s and 30s, better than probably any athlete in an individual sport ever. Um, And that's captivating on its own, obviously. And then there's the mix of who Tiger Woods is and how he was raised. But why do you think that endures? Why is Tiger at 42 trying to come back such a great story? I mean, for at least someone my age, in my early 30s, I want him to come back and be the same for pathetic sentimental reasons, you know. <laughs> um, but also, I, I just feel like we got, you know, he was on pace to break every single record. At You know, he was almost at them by 32 or 33 years old. And then we just had this series of mishaps, you know, personal, uh, physical, everything, that just seems like it cut it off. And now we're, we're, you know, hoping that he can come back and resume where he left pick off, where he left off, you know, almost a decade ago. So I think people feel like, uh, you know, some much of it of his own making, um, but a lot of it just un- unfair by history standards. What's happened to him uh, in the last ten years, and want to see if he can get back to where he was. Somebody tweeted out it was what one of the like official accounts, whether it was the PGA Tour. Or- somebody else, this list of Tiger's 80 wins and really small type to fit in the, <laughs> to fit in like the image field and, and Twitter. And they were arrayed in three different columns, 27 in the first column, 27 in the second and 26 in the third. And the first column is like 1996 through 2001. Then the second column is like, I'm, I might be getting this a little bit wrong, but it's like, it took him five years and five years to get the first like 27, 27. And then there's like, they start piling up again. And then there's just like nothing between 2013 and 2018 after this like huge long list of titles and tiny type. And as Jim was saying, it just feels wrong. Like it feels like we were robbed of seeing what we were supposed to see. And it's just like the most stark example of how in sports, nothing is guaranteed and and you have to, um, you know, stay healthy. You have to go out and actually win these tournaments. And there is an inevitability to his victories that um, we're just now realizing wasn't inevitable. And I think in retrospect, it makes you appreciate what he did even more. And the thing that I thought was really um, cool about your piece is like noting how little he has to give us in order for us to feel something towards him and feel yeah. the humanity, just because back then he gave absolutely nothing. He was a total, um, he was a dick, and nobody cared, and we but all loved him. he gave so much athletically. He did. That's true, and that's true, and that's a that's a great point that you made about everything that he had to put up with, and for us to even ask anything of him seems a little bit selfish in some in some sense. But like, 
just acknowledging children now or like giving somebody like occasionally. a fist bump. The occasional <laughs> acknowledgement of a child. Yeah. Everybody is like, he is like a saint. He's like, a, <laughs> we do not deserve his kindness. Well, I think it's more also, Jim, that he seems to be more grown up. I mean, he obviously had a wife and a kid and two kids whom he, you know, is has custody with now with with his ex-wife. But now he seems more like a grown up. His entourage is minimal. John Branch did a similar thing that you did for the New York Times following Tiger around for a few days. Um, and the the one thing that, that leapt out at me that I didn't really know was that he's got a very small group now. He doesn't have coaches. He's his own coach. He doesn't have a masseuse or a trainer following him around. He should probably um, have a masseuse. He probably does that at I home. I think he though. can probably find he a masseuse. probably find a masseuse one. somewhere. Yeah. I think he can afford masseuse, the I best think masseuse so, yeah. in, in whatever city they're playing in. Um, but just the, the notion that he does seem to be scaled back. He has a live-in girlfriend now. He like keeps his sort of professional contacts to two or three people, an agent and a manager. And it seems like a sort of a much more like human scale for one of the greatest athletes of our time. Yeah. I mean, he probably also... The flip side of that could be they still doesn't trust that many people. Sure. But it, it may have been that, you know. Which he, might be smart, too. Yeah, it may be. I mean, there are probably a lot of people trying to take advantage of, of him over the years. But I I do think that he seems, um, you know, more grounded. Uh, I think he's, like I said in my piece, I think he's humbled just that he's still here. Um, and I think he, you know, I think he's humbled that he recognizes how good the talent is that's come after him. And he can't just sort of get away with acting like he's going to resume, you know, return to this um, dominant position again. So I think he's just um, appreciating it as it goes along. We'll see if he can start rattling off more wins, if he reverts to old habits and is a jerk again. But, um, I mean, this was just a really great year. I don't know how different he is, but as I said in my piece, he he plays being a different person very well. Well, I think publicly we also like to see – Superstars humbled, yeah, and see how they respond to it. And that's right. certainly, I would have been okay here. with him being humbled by one back surgery. Like the the other three, I didn't really need personally. Do you ever fantasize about you know how he calls like Steve Sands Sansy, Justin Rose Rosie? Do you think yeah. about him calling you newly? Has I, that ever? I don't. I don't know if he. I think he would probably go with Jimmy, which is very, <laughs> um, you know. Not very interesting. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. But I don't know. I mean, I went to one tournament. I was inside the ropes, and we're best friends now. <laughs> um, but he hasn't given me a nickname yet. So Ryder Cup is this coming weekend. Um, they're off to France. Our American uh, heroes. heroes. Phil Mickelson is on the team, even though he sucks. I think Tiger beat Even him though by, he can no longer play golf. <laughs> Tiger beat him by 24 shots. Um, hey, but they're going to have a made-for-TV match play event. They are. I'm tuning in. How much do I have to pay for that, Jim? I think it's twenty five dollars. Wow. I don't think even I'm going to pay for that. And I'm an insane person, so. <laughs> um, but the Ryder Cup, it's like it feels like now that Tiger won, golf is just kind of over. Is that wrong? <laughs> People, we should still be excited about the Ryder Cup. Maybe I feel I feel like we don't we don't even deserve the most hyped Ryder Cup now because we just had so much yesterday. But it is going to be. I think people in a couple of days will be ready for it. It's going to be pretty crazy. Um, I don't know if anyone's. Besides, like, Tiger Woods, I don't know if anyone's going to play well at it. I mean, it was something like looking at the field, the Tour Championship, like half the American team was in the bottom, you know, 10 of the field or something. Like, Brooks Kepka was a nightmare. Maybe they were just practicing. Maybe they are actually Maybe they playing. didn't care. I Maybe don't they know. were playing the other course just mentally to get ready. 
Maybe. I mean, maybe they were just, you know, maybe, setting, they, were maybe all, they were setting up the narrative. You yeah, know? they were they all tanking. played so bad just so that yeah. they could be good. Or tanking so the Tiger could have his win and yeah. that would lift the whole Ryder yeah. Cup team. It was rigged. That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, last thought is just that, um, you know, the other players that are in the sport now because of Tiger, I think he acknowledged or said just being kind of touched by how they all like, greeted him, whether, you know, Ricky Fowler and um, the likes of those guys after the tournament. And then just like on social media afterwards, everybody just seems like so grateful um, for everything that Tiger has done for the sport. The fact that there is this like $10 million purse in the FedEx Cup, that's probably because of Tiger Woods. Um, and just all of his like peers basically saying, thank you. It feels... it. It feels like good to them to like lose to this guy and to have the like, you know, him be back on top. My of last thought, the, the, the redemption or rehabilitation of Tiger Woods, does it need to take a really sort of a, a, another really progressive turn? He's always been a very apolitical person. He's designing a Trump golf course in Dubai. Uh, when, yeah, we forgot to mention the Trump tweet. Yeah, Trump tweeted during the tournament on Sunday to congratulate Tiger about how great he was playing. Um, when John Branch, in that New York Times story, asked a few anodyne questions um, of Tiger about Trump and race relations, and Tiger completely punted on answering them, and then Trump tweeted the fake news media worked hard to get Tiger Woods to say something that he didn't want to say. Tiger wouldn't play the game. He's very smart. More importantly, he's playing great golf again, exclamation point. I mean, the, the redemption would be complete in my mind if Tiger said, no, Donald Trump is full of shit, and I... You know, don't I am just and I, and I like, don't believe that. That's not who I wasn't not playing. The I'm game. just like so happy to like not in any way tie together golf and politics. And politics. Like I just yeah, because golf and politics he can wear never like be tied together. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just I There's mean, nothing like nothing political about uh, about golf. Right, but I mean, just I don't I I don't know. Maybe I should, but I really don't care what Tiger says about Donald Trump. You know, he could wear a MAGA hat. Yeah, but whatever. come on. Really? He could wear a MAGA hat? I mean, wouldn't no, it really, I, like, really make really you don't feel care. better if he actually stood up and no, said? No, it wouldn't make me feel better. I completely separate it from, from my That's day amazing. job. How do you do that? Because it's my day job. I don't know. I don't like to have it uh, invade every aspect of what I do. That's healthy. Jim is like one of these um, Fox Sports guys who's like, why? they, they got to get the politics out, yeah. of our, out of our sports. We gotta we gotta stop these uh, these guys from having opinions. Stick to golf. He wants he wants Tiger <laughs> to shut up and dribble is what he's saying. And by dribble you mean dribble the, the ball on on like uh, the face of his putting his uh, his sandwich. I don't think Tiger really wants to get involved in politics. He just wants Tiger. I think to, that he's made that. He just wants clear. Tiger to be happy. Uh, Jim Newell writes about golf for Slate. He also writes about politics, but not but at the never, same time. Not never at the same time. Never. Jim, thank you very much, and congratulations. Okay, thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our interview with Lee Jenkins, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about whether a better should get paid off 
after he took advantage of a sports book to the tune of $82,000. We'll tell you more. We'll adjudicate. Gambling will be discussed. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Back in July, LeBron James announced that he was leaving Cleveland and signing with the Los Angeles Lakers. Two months later, Lee Jenkins, who wrote the piece for Sports Illustrated announcing LeBron was going to Cleveland, announced he was going to the Los Angeles Clippers to become the franchise's executive director of research and identity. We have Lee Jenkins on the line with us now. Lee, I think it would be fair to say that the Lakers got the better part of that deal basketball-wise, although hopefully the Clippers got the better... Hopefully the Clippers got the better journalist. <laughs> yeah, although anybody who watches uninterrupted may may beg to differ. Um, but no, I think uh, I, I think that I hope that's probably I think that's a bad, pretty accurate assessment. So you were at SI um, for more than a decade. You were the lead basketball writer for I believe eight years. Um, when I saw this announcement, I was surprised. Um, Less because it, um, you know, it seems it clearly seems interesting, like, and it seems like a cool move. It's just not something that was particularly precedented or something that I was anticipating. So, can you just give us a little bit of background on how this happened and why you made this move? You know, when you're covering people, I've covered the Clippers. I, you know, covered the whole league. You, know, you sort of meet people as you go, and there are some people you connect with, and you know, some frankly you don't. And late in the regular season, I had lunch, and I, and I didn't know Michael Winger. He's the general manager of the Clippers. Um, I, it was just kind of a getting-to-know-you lunch. Uh, he was new in town. It's kind of what you do sometimes. I mean, I live in Los Angeles, um, and you're trying to kind of develop sources wherever you can. And we had lunch. It was a few hours. And this never came up, nothing about – we really didn't talk all that much even about basketball. Um, but a couple of weeks later, he called back and you know wanted me to come into the office and, and talk. And we did talk more about basketball. And, and he broached for the first time, taking sort of my skills, taking reporting skills, different style of asking questions, different style of putting together information. And he, he asked me if, he, if I ever thought that that could be valuable to an organization or if that's something that ever interested me. And honestly, I'd never... I'd never in my life even thought about that. In the eight years I've done this, nobody in the NBA had ever asked me anything like that. I didn't think it would ever come around again. And I was interested in it. Uh, I want to go to one of the things, the first things you said in that answer, which was that, you know, you, you get all this information as a journalist, but I think the most self-aware reporters understand that you're never quite sure that you have the full story. There's always the, the, the knowledge that there's more there. Um, and for me, that was the impetus to do immersive participatory journalism. I mean, yep. I know that I learned more about the NFL from being inside it for a short time than I ever learned from covering it. But I also knew that I was there to write a book about it and that with any luck, a lot of people might read that and see my name on the cover. And wow, lucky me. You're not doing <laughs> this to write a book, obviously. This is a career change and maybe it's temporary and I assume it's for more money than a journalist can make. But do you worry about knowing so much and not being able to share it with the public the way you have? This is going to be a different, yeah. it's going yeah, to be a different approach to, to work. I mean, even just now through the process, I mean, I, I've learned things 
that I never could have imagined. And there are moments I'm like, God, that would be great. Like, <laughs> if I would be great, this would be a great story. But you have to sort of, you have to divorce yourself from that. And I do believe that it will, it will inform my perspective and the way I, because I do, I mean, look, pro sports, it's, it's never forever. I fully expect to write again at some point in my career, be back in the media. And I think I'll be, can I share all of this? Probably not, but I'll for sure be more informed. I th- one of the things that, that struck me as I was thinking about what you're going to be doing that seems like a very fundamental challenge is in determining the difference between how players respond to a journalist writing about them versus how they respond to a team executive trying yeah. to decide whether to hire them. Who are they more likely to open up to? How are they um, likely to open up and in what different ways? They're trying to sell themselves in, I think, both situations. Um, but I'm really, you know, again, this is where I wish you could just write about this after you do it for a year so that we can sort of better understand, um, you know, how do human behavior in, you know, the media versus employment. Have you started to think about sort of the approach to, to, to those kinds of uh, conundrums? I have, and it may not be. I think it's easy. It, it's easy to assume. Oh, well, it'll be easier. All the walls will be down. I don't necessarily know that that's the case. I mean, I'm going to have to learn about you know, the relationships between teams and front offices, and you know, th- there's there's complication there too, just as there is between players and and media. You know, players and front offices. So those are all. I think kind of fraught relationships and part of what you hope to do as a journalist and now that I'd hope to do as an executive is to, you know, to build those bridges the best you can to create, um, you know, to create connection. That's what we're always trying to do. What I'm trying to do when I interview somebody is, you know, I'm trying to create a relationship, a working right. relationship, but still a relationship and a feeling like, uh, like this person could trust me and talk to me. And I, I'm hopeful that I would do the same, although I, I'm not naive enough to think that there would be no challenges. I think there'll be different challenges, but I still think they'll be present. Do you have a sense, um, I'm always interested to hear Stefan talk about in the NFL how players kind of can bond over hating the league or hating football in right. some sense. Do you have a sense in the NBA of um, whether there's kind of solidarity among players. I mean, we see it out in the world that players across teams are all friends with each other. Um, but are there kind of bonds that are made kind of because they don't like the GM or because they hate the coach or because I, I don't have the sense, certainly. They that hate players, the director of identity. <laughs> I don't. That's I, more likely. <laughs> I certainly don't have the sense that players hate basketball in the way that they, lo- they hate football, quite the opposite. But I'm I'm wondering if you've thought through or seen in your years as a reporter kind of how those relationships are, are formed either within teams or across teams. Yeah, I think in the NBA right now, relationships are, are massively important. I mean, some of these friendships among stars, I think if you know, they'll change the landscape of, you know, they change the landscape of the team, they're critical in free agency. I feel like you hear about that a little bit more with the coach, with coaches, you know, where they'll sort of be a galvanizing. I mean, it, it's, not, it's a little old-fashioned to me, and I think of some of the more 
old school coaches where I think that dynamic might exist. And it is kind of a football dynamic, right? Is you're sort of, you're almost bonding against the coach who's the, you know, the, the Bear Bryant type, the Ditka type. I feel like the modern NBA coach is kind of, is more in it with his players. You know, I'm thinking about, thinking about Golden State or, I, you know, I'm probably not even allowed to talk about other teams anymore, but I think about some of these sort of very modern coaches where there seems to be a real partnership with their players. And I think that's what teams are, are moving toward. As far as general managers, what I've found is it's, it's really interesting. Some general managers, you know, you can see them embody more the Billy Bean philosophy where they don't have real relationships with the players, that they try to yeah. keep them a little bit at a remove um, for strategic reasons, whereas others, and I'd almost say most in the NBA, probably more than baseball, there is a relationship there. I mean, they re- they want to be down there. So the name of the game, obviously, in the NBA is acquiring star players. Right. Um, there was a report earlier this summer that the Clippers fired their announcer, Bruce Bowen, for saying negative things about Kawhi Leonard. Um, and the reports or the insinuation was that the Clippers were doing that because they wanted Kawhi to potentially sign with them. I presume that you will not want to talk about that specific uh, event, but I'm just oh, curious no, if... I'd love, I'd love to get signed day one. <laughs> no, I'm just curious what... Um, I'm just curious kind of what your thoughts are around how your work and your values as a journalist could mesh with the fact that really what the organization is trying to do and what its goal is, is to get a few star players who we will not name um, to sign with the team. No, that's the reality of it. No, it's, it's a complete, and that's where it's a complete change. It's a, that is, I mean, they already have a lot of competitive players on the roster, but the idea is to make, is to make the Clippers a team that has traditionally not been a destination into a destination. And that's, and that is, drives a lot of what the organization is trying to do every day. And I think they've already done it to some degree because I mean, they play in LA, they played in LA for a long time, but they're owned by Steve Ballmer. They own, they're owned by the wealthiest owner in pro sports and, you know, maybe the most committed or one of them for sure. So there's no doubt that the, the goal changes. It's no longer to, you know, tell, tell the sorts of stories that I told before it's to help them, build what could be an epic sports story. When you did your um, really famous and well done I'm Coming Home story with LeBron, obviously you've written so many um, great profiles over the years, but this was one that was written literally in LeBron's voice. Um, I'm curious if that experience, if you feel like that kind of analogizes in any way with what you're doing now. And also, Mm. how did you as you're kind of listening to LeBron tell you his story and why he made his decision, kind of how are you kind of sifting through or deciding whether what he's telling you is, you know, he's being 100% truthful um, with his kind of experience and what decision he was making? Yeah, two questions. So I do think part of that, I didn't think about it in those terms, um, but I do think you're right. I think that there are elements of that where you are 
obviously that's his truth, right? That was his truth. It was from his mouth. And my goal... He was presenting it as his truth, certainly. Right. It was... And he's given us no no reason to disbelieve him. I have... Just to be clear, I'm not saying he was lying, but it's just like he's telling you what he says, and you have right. you're kind of you're taking his word for it. Well, we're making journalistic well, a lot judgment. Of that. I sure. mean, a lot of what I've done has been that. It's it's. I mean, not in first person. And you quote a bunch of other people, and you talk about a bunch of people, and you you lend your perspective to it. But at the end of the day, I'm you ask these questions, and you take the answers, and I have no account for always the subjects what the subject's just what the subject says, the subject's own truth. And so in that case it was you know, it was a hundred percent of that. I didn't probably you know, my goal in that instance was to explain what say what he was doing and why. And that was how I that was the point of the interview. That was the point of the piece. Um and it, look, will that will I be doing some of that in this role? It's possible, but this won't be I mean, I'm not going to be writing for their website. I'm not going to be – I mean, they already have two great PR guys, Chris Wallace and Dennis Rogers. I, that won't be the job necessarily. But for sure in that moment, you're more – you're probably more in it with your subject than you would be otherwise because one of those huge walls is down. Right. That they have the control. You know, Lee, the, the other thing that, I, that we haven't touched on here is what your hiring and what the Clippers' pursuit of you says about – where professional sports are heading and the sort of relentless pursuit of something different, a way to gain one more edge. And for, yeah. you know, for most of the last decade, we've been talking about that analytically and, and almost all of the writers and reporters that have been hired by front offices have been analytics guys. John the, Hollinger being the number one example of a former yeah, SI guy right. who's the GM of the Grizzlies. Right. That's part now. I mean, yeah, and, there are a lot. and it seems like, you know, again, this sort of application of ideas from other realms of life and work being dragged in or brought in to sports just to find one more edge. I mean, you're conscious of that being the case here, I assume. I hope so. <laughs> I hope it I hope it helps give them an edge. They're definitely I mean they're really yeah, no pressure people. <laughs> yeah, I mean you know and it's the kind of thing Balmer would do is he's he's going to look under every rock. He's going to try to find an edge. He's going to think differently. And so it's not I guess in that sense it's not surprising, but I do think part of it is this idea because I've been around enough organizations and I'll meet people and I'll say what you do before coming here? And I, I gave this example earlier, but like I was in Oklahoma City once. I asked me that. He said, "Oh, I just got off a, a submarine. <laughs> He'd been working on a submarine, and then he was going to work with the Oklahoma City Thunder." So it's, I, you know, people who come from different backgrounds. I think this is something that, in all corporate environments, but particularly recently in the NBA, they're trying to get people to look at it differently. Yeah, and I think in one of your earlier answers, you were kind of suitably. Um, just kind of unsure about what kind of effect that you um, would have there. Because if I went in there as a journalist, I'm somebody who, like you, is kind of <laughs> racked with uncertainty, as I think a lot of journalists are. I would have no idea if I would be able to predict that or provide something valuable to say how a guy would react after his first contract. I mean, that seems like maybe you could get a hint here or there, but it really seems 
on the other impossible hand, to say. On the other regard. hand, if you approach it journalistically, as I know you will, Lee, you're, there's a body of social science and research about performance and about psychology and about how people integrate into organizations that you're probably going to end up reading a lot more about than you ever have to try yeah, to get an, a, an assessment yeah. of, of how people will perform and fit in. Yeah, and also what you can do what you can do as an organization to put them in a best possible position. When you look at their story, you look at your team's story, where do those mesh? Where do they not mesh? Mm-hmm. I think all of those are I mean, my answer for everything with every story, with every, it's just, it's just to dig, to just find a little bit more, a little bit more, you get all this information and you put it together like a puzzle you say, okay, who do we, who do we have here? And I, I look, there's no, it, it's really hard to, tell, okay, this is how we know about this person. This is how they will react to this kind of situation. You, you, you probably can't tell that. I mean, you can't tell that for sure. No, no one can really tell you that. But the information can't hurt. I think you can at least get maybe a little bit closer, um, a little bit closer to knowing, you know, what's inside, to knowing who a person is than, you know, than you do otherwise. And, I, and I'm not saying they don't do that already. I think these teams do that already. But I, I do wonder sometimes if it's worth further thought. Like I'll ask coaches sometimes about, you know, what about this sort of issue about play. And they always say, I wish we knew a little bit more about who they are. And so that's kind of that's my challenge also in the job I've had is I want to know a little bit more about who you are. Yep. How do you get that? How do you ask questions that lead you to that? That's the trick, right? If I could sit down with every player I've ever interviewed and say, well, who are you? and they would just talk for the next hour, then the job would be easy. But the fact is there's so much that goes into trying to figure that out, and then you never figure it out fully anyway. You're just trying to get yourself probably a little bit closer to understanding. Yeah, my last thought for you is more of a comment, which I've kind of, it's dawned on me as we've been having this conversation, is that success in our field is extremely subjective, whether it's about an individual piece of work or a body of work. But it's a one subjective and almost entirely under your control. Not entirely, but it's largely under your control. With an, an, an individual story, um, you write it, and it's as good as um, you know the work that you put into it. And now the role that you're moving into now your success is the organization's success, which is extremely uh, objective. It's wins and losses and playoffs and championships. But your role as a cog in that is complete. will be completely, I think, opaque even to you probably. You know, I, wish our, I wish our business was still subjective. Um, I wish that were the case, meaning sports writing business or the media business. But I, I don't know that it's fully subjective. I feel like they're putting metrics on stories and, and not really sports illustrated. They insulated me from that, but I feel like I hear about that more and more. Um, so I don't, you know, I do feel like there's more, they're using more gauges also, but no, you're right. This is a, you know, I'm entering a wins and losses business here and it, it's, but I'm also part of a, I'm part of a larger team. And fortunately I'm flanked by people who really know what they're doing and, you know, when you're a journalist, I think you guys probably feel like this. You're essentially just a professional learner. It's like, throw me into something. I'll try to learn as fast as I can and become kind of an expert in the moment on it and see if I can kind of get myself through it. And I know that, especially in the early stages, that's what I'm going to try to do. 
Lee Jenkins was the lead NBA writer for Sports Illustrated. He's now the Los Angeles Clippers Executive Director of Research and Identity. Thank you so much, Lee, and good luck with the new job. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. Appreciate it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On October 2nd, 1978, the Yankees and Red Sox, tied at the end of the regular season, met in a one-game playoff in Fenway Park to decide the American League East division title. I was 15, and I listened to the game on a transistor radio during JV soccer practice. Coach said it was okay. When Yankee shortstop Bucky Dent hit a three-run homer in the seventh, I ran around the field in rapturous glee. That day was also a life highlight for a guy that I would meet on the first day of college three years later, our next guest, the film director Jonathan Hawk. His latest is made basically for the two of us. It's called 14 Back, and it's about the absolutely bonkers 78 season. The Bronx Zoo, Reggie, Billy, and George, 14 games behind in July. The playoff, Bucky fucking Dent. The film is on Sports Illustrated TV, and you should watch it. John, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Stefan. Happy to be back. Thank you guys for letting me be here, even though the film is just for you two. Really? Well, you're invited. All right. Others yeah, are invited fr- friends to Friends and it. family <laughs> friends and family are invited. Fourteen games back is a lot of games to be back. So let's listen to Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe, Carlton Fisk, Fred Lynn, and the spaceman Bill Lee of the Red Sox talk about being that far back. Fourteen games in July means the season's over. And the Yankees they were in chaos. So you just stopped kind of paying attention to them. We thought we might at the end fourteen games might turn into twenty four games. They're 14 games behind us. They're done. They are done. We're 14 games ahead. What does that mean? Don't whistle past cemeteries. The dead will rise and they'll come and get you. I wrote a faux memoir about the game for Pesca's recent book of what ifs. It's up now on Sports Illustrated's website. And John, you've made the definitive documentary about it. How important was this moment to you growing up? And what was it like to take control of it as a filmmaker? Well, it's probably the single moment I remember better than any other uh, sports moment. Maybe Reggie's third homer uh, at Yankee Stadium the fall before. But this was, you know, I was 14 and it was the pinnacle of my fandom. And uh, uh, it was Rosh Hashanah. So we were, my dad was home from work and we got back from synagogue and turned on the game like uh, any good assimilated Jewish family would. And uh, what happened over the next three hours was, uh, was, you know, literally the greatest moment of my life. Uh, to take control of it as a filmmaker, I don't. I don't uh, really look at it as taking control of it. The, it's it's sort of the other way around. The moment sort of takes control of you, and the characters in the film take control of you. And as as the storyteller, uh, you kind of just get into the flow with your your characters and and the history you're recounting. And uh, you know, 
we poured a lot of hours into making this film, but it was kind of effortless the whole way at the same time because it was just, you know, it was sort of part of uh, uh, my fiber. And, and Jim Potter, it's uh, co-writer and producer and editor, um, he was also sort of in the same place at the same moment, the same age. And and uh, it was kind of the perfect, uh, the perfect vehicle for us to just be ourselves as filmmakers and just let ourselves get absorbed into the story and that that's the best way to do it it's really great it's a it is really absorbing even if you don't care about these teams um which i don't even if if you weren't born in 1978 yeah i mean you guys grew up with with all these guys you you also grew up with this game but i'm curious um uh what you think of my (laughs) interpretation of of these players in these interviews like they're super engaging and I really enjoyed watching them but I felt like if these players were around now and stepping um contemporaneously these guys are all like huge assholes and the whole like (laughs) just like this whole ethos of playing the game the right way and all the fights they got into around like the proprieties of you know this guy did did this on the field or this guy did that on the field this guy's like Greg Nettles and Sparky Lyle and you know Carlton Fisk, and he, like listening to all these guys talk, just like I found them really hard to like. Like just the way that they talked about the game, and just that they, they seem like jerks, kind of. Well, I, 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 I didn't have that impression. I thought they were kind of awesome and and unfiltered, and and uh, um, you know they they were playing the game at a time when. The World Series check was a was sometimes more than they were making the whole season, and uh, you know, and and hatred was a virtue. You know, that was sort of uh, uh, a a a guiding principle of the spirit of this rivalry at the time when they would have fistfights all the time. I mean, Nettles told us the story uh, about the nineteen was it seventy seven playoff or seventy eight? I think it was. It was game five, uh, so it must have been 77 when there was a fist fight that broke out when George Brett slid into third and they just immediately started punching each other. It's like a, it's like a, a slapstick comedy to watch the, the old highlights on YouTube. But they broke up the fight and Marty Springstead was the umpire and he, he said, listen, you, Brett, you're an important player. I'm not throwing you out of the game five. Nettles, you're an important player. I'm not throwing you out of game five, but no more fighting. <laughs> and and that's the way it happened then. And um, I don't think they're assholes. I just think that they're, you know, they're they're of a different time. And I think that the intensity with which they can remember the ill will um, speaks to their, you know, their honesty and 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 how important it all was to them. And I think that. If there is something lacking from the game today, certainly skill is not lacking. Strength is not lacking. Uh, but what is lacking is, if well, what is not there, uh, it may be regrettable to you, it may not be, but what's not there is the real personal animus that, that can come to exist over the years. I think they're just all too well paid to be enemies with one another anymore and and that's fine for them and it's fine for us it's the way it is but it, it was 
kind of cool back then, too. Yeah, I mean, and and that really was what the era was like, Josh, especially for the players, but also for the fan bases. I mean, this was sort of genuine hatred. I mean, look, Yankees fans and Red Sox fans in their respective stadiums would brawl throughout basically every game. I mean, as a teenager, John and I both went to Yankee Stadium, and I know my friends and I would count the fights during games because there were usually 15, 18, 20 fights in in the stands. Um, and then on the field, this was real dislike. Um, you know, Fisk and Munson brawled first in 1973, five years before this season. There was another brawl in 76. Chambliss got hit by a dart that was thrown by a fan in 1974. Um, and the, the intensity, and I think that's the word you used, John, is what really leapt out at me in the film. There's, there's the one moment where Bill Lee, who's fantastic, he's a quote machine, and he always has been, where he pulls Greg Nettle's baseball card out of his wallet, this faded, chipped, falling apart baseball card, and said that Greg Nettle's is right next to my right ass cheek for eternity, and the view and the smell don't get any better with time. I mean, this is 40 years ago, and the, 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 the passion that they brought is still palpable. And I think that's what makes telling the story of this season so powerful, because it really was crazy. And not just in the animus between the two teams, John, but of course in the backstory with the Yankees, which why don't you set that up um, just about how dysfunctional and how insane the 78 season was and 77 preceding it. Yeah, and, and it, it is so much fun to think about. I mean, and Josh, you who, who deplore the Derek Jeterness and the, the, the deliberate blandness of of pro sports today, um, I would think might get a kick out of all that. Well, what what was going on with the Yankees back then was uh, in 76, they, they were American League champions. They got swept in the series, but they had overtaken the Red Sox, who were American League champions in 75 and almost won the World Series. Uh, then the Yankees, they have a big fight in Yankee Stadium with the Red Sox, and they end up winning the division and the pennant. Uh, Thurman Munson's the league MVP. He's got a very fragile ego. He uh, um, wants to be considered. He was always uh, had a chip on his shoulder because he thought he was not considered the great player that he was. He was a league MVP. He had three uh, gold gloves uh at that point early in his career, and, and he was still sort of considered second fiddle to Carlton Fisk of the Red Sox, and, and he it was really important to him to be the man. And then George Steinbrenner goes out without consulting the manager and sign Billy Martin, who was thin-skinned to say the least, uh, and uh, he signs Reggie Jackson, the most bodacious braggadocious, swagalicious free agent in in the history of free agency. And it was actually the first year of real unfettered free agency in baseball. And, uh, and you know, Reggie immediately calls himself the, stir that, the straw that stirs the drink, uh, a quote that every player on the team remembers with, with uh, hatred in their, in their voice as they recount it. And uh, Thurman can only stir it bad. And he's the only one who can stir it right. And uh, and from that point on, he's got all of his teammates against him. He's got his manager against him. And this causes dissension that is 
uh, gobbled up by the New York newspapers. The tabloids love it. Rupert Murdoch has just bought the New York Post, so he turns it into this, you know, uh, huge headline blaring gossipy uh, scandal sheet. And uh, the Daily News follows suit and there's a tabloid war and and Reggie and Billy and Thurman uh, feed these insatiable tabloid writers with soap opera uh, story after story. And the guy kind of orchestrating it behind the scenes, it turns out, is George Steinbrenner, who's the biggest leaker in the uh, in the organization. And um, he just wants to keep the Yankees in the headlines. And uh, he's having a grand old time while uh, I think there were more fistfights uh, in the in the clubhouse than there were on the field between uh, between Munson and Jackson, Munson and Jackson. Multiple times. Can I can I just stop you guys there? It's like I'm surprised that you would push back on the idea that these guys are assholes. The Ones the Yankees hated all hated each other. All these guys. It wasn't just cross team animus. They all thought that each other on their own team were assholes. Well, they, I'm not they, saying they, that, they, that that, that mostly, makes it like I think it makes it more enjoyable. But I'm just saying, like you know, these guys are. I don't know. These are like genuine human emotions. Reggie Jackson was a complete asshole. His teammates. So was Billy Martin. So was George him. Steinbrenner. Yes. It was the so greatest collection of assholes in the history of sports. I just think it's really it's important for you guys. You guys are fish. You do not see the water that you're swimming in. <laughs> like fast forward this fast forward this forty years. We had a conversation about yeah. Goose Gossage talking about how nerds have ruined the game mm-hmm. and just sounding like like all of these guys are total reactionaries. And they all are saying things like that when players say this stuff today, we push back and we fight back against it. And maybe that makes them colorful and fun because they're of a previous generation. I think that that team of Yankees, that season, the ownership, management, and some of the players were really, there's really no parallel in baseball history. So I think you either look back on it as, yes, this was crazy, and to graft it into 2018 is impossible, but to look at it in the context of of the times, it's, it's weird. I mean, I don't remember as a fan being glad that there was all this turmoil that like Reggie stormed into the dugout and got into a fight with well, Billy Martin entertaining in 1977. And engaging. It was entertaining and engaging. Um, and it really heightened the, the sense of partisanship as a kid. Like sure. hating the Red Sox was sure, a real sure, sure. thing. The last thing hey, I'm going to say, hey. the last thing I'm going to say about the fighting is just that as somebody who grew up a bit later, it's just really hard to watch this and see it celebrated and not think about like Ron Artest sure. and the malice in the palace and just how the valence of that was totally different. It was not fun. It was not considered colorful when it was black basketball players doing it. Um, and so that's just kind of the milieu I'm coming from here. Well, I probably wouldn't share the the, the standard view of the malice in the palace. But, but in any case, um, how great – tell me something. Would, would Bill Belichick – and Robert Kraft be bigger assholes or less assholes? Would Tom Brady be a bigger asshole or or less of an asshole if he was really saying what he felt about? You know, they they all were saying what they really felt about, about one other. another. Yeah, I that's think a good point. So I, I don't think they're. At, I mean, Steinbrenner was an asshole. Billy Martin was an <laughs> asshole. Reggie Jackson was apparently a big asshole, but you know. That's okay. I didn't. I don't think the rest of the guys 
really hated one another. I think they, I mean, Pinella loved his teammates. He cries thinking about them, you know, at the, at the end of his interview, he starts crying and what a great time in their lives. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and I felt the uh, same thing with Carlton Fisk and the relationship that most of the Red Sox have. Even Jim Rice, who at the time was viewed as, you know, in Boston, African-American superstar that wasn't embraced by the public. Even Jim Rice, you can tell, felt a sense of feels a sense of nostalgia and a sense of community with the players that he went through this with in 1978. Yeah. What's interesting was that it was the Sox who were known at the time as, the, you know, 25 cabs for 25 players uh, mm-hmm. that they were the ones who didn't really uh, get along. And and uh, and what what Louis Tian told me that when, you know, he was traded, he was on the Red Sox in 78, but he was traded or he left as a free agent and went to the Yankees in 79. And he said, uh, you know, the first five months of the season before, uh, before Thurman Munson uh, was killed in the plane crash, uh, after every game, he and Nettles and Pinella and Thurman and Gossage and Cliff Johnson would go into the sauna with a case of beer <laughs> and for two hours they would just talk about baseball and they wouldn't talk about salaries, they wouldn't talk about their girls, they wouldn't talk about anything but baseball and and Louis said it was his favorite his favorite time in his entire career was hanging with those guys and talking baseball because they were really into baseball. And, uh, you know, I was really into baseball then too. And and I really loved these guys. But again, not not reverentially now. I think that's one of the keys to the, to the film was that um, we not be reverential uh, about it all. We, there's, there's some nostalgia to it, of course. Um, but... Uh, the the tone is not reverent. It's uh, there's a lot of laughs, and and I think we were following the lead of our characters uh, in that. That these guys, you know, they were really serious about it at the time, but they're funny about it now. Let's talk about the game and the stuff that you have about the Bucky Dent home run is really great and revelatory. Um, but I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, since that is obviously the thing that everybody knows about from that. Um, game was there a moment that you had forgotten about, or something that was really important to the players that um, kind of surprised you, or you think might surprise people who think they know that game? The pitch before the home run, Bucky fouled the ball off his foot and was rolling around in the dirt, and looked like he might have to come out of the game. And uh, everybody who watched the game remembers that it was, you know, the classic. Uh, like Bernie Carbo in the 75 series, he foul tips one barely with two strikes to stay alive. Then he hits a home run. Here's Bucky fouling one off his ankle and, and, and rolling around the dirt and looking for all uh, all intents and purposes like, uh, you know, a, a dead man and then um, gets up and hits the homer. While he's rolling around in the dirt and they're spraying the ethyl chloride on his ankle and trying to get him back ready to play, Mike Torres the pitcher for the Red Sox was just standing out on the mound waiting. And he had been really locked in. He had, had given up no runs and, and two hits through, um, through six and gave up two singles uh, before Bucky Dent. So uh, but had two outs and 
was really, really sharp. And uh, during this time that that Dent is uh, trying to get himself back, which was, you know, several minutes, uh, Torres doesn't take any warm ups and he just kind of loses his focus and loses his groove. And uh, when he came back uh, to, you know, when play resumed and he, and he threw his first pitch back, uh, it was not nearly as sharp as the pitches he had been throwing all game to that point. And, and Torres kind of blames himself and, and Fisk kind of mused about uh, who's to blame for that. Uh, Carlton Fisk, the catcher, um, you know, they, uh, but they, they both felt that they had Bucky right where they wanted him. Um, and because Bucky uh, was a terrible hitter. Because was always Bucky right was, where pitchers wanted him. Yeah, you know, he was he was the worst hitter on the Yankees and, and had four home runs all, all year. And, um, uh, you know, as long as you didn't throw it over the middle of the plate, waist high, you weren't in trouble with Bucky. And um, that's exactly what Torres did on the next pitch. My favorite moment is when Carl Yastrzemski pops up to end the game, but that's just me. Jonathan Hawk is the director of 14 Back and many other fantastic documentaries. You not can, an asshole. He's not an asshole. Neither am I. But he likes other assholes. <laughs> you can watch the film on Sports Illustrated TV. John, thank you so much for talking about our childhoods. <laughs> thank you very much for having a childhood with me. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls. I feel like I should note, I don't know if listeners will have noticed, but I feel like there's some talk of Tiger Woods being a jerk and the Red Sox and Yankees players being assholes. Mm-hmm. We're celebrating Tiger. Is it kind of... Uh, making some digs at the baseball players. Does that seem contradictory? So do I feel like, do I seem like a, do I seem like a hypocrite? Your hypocrisies. Yes. Um, The explanation is just that uh, the heart wants what it wants, Stefan. What what are we calling our after balls this week? Um, Well, the, I thought that the, you know, we just listened to John's interview. The most enduring phrase to come out of the Red Sox Yankees playoff game is of course the epithet in New England, renaming Bucky Dent as, Bucky fucking dent, yep. or the sanitized Bucky bleeping dent. Seems obvious, but I thought it must have a source. So I looked for it. The first reference comes just two days after the game. It's in the Boston Globe in a postmortem column by the great Peter Gammons. Gammons quotes a friend saying, <laughs> I'm not even sure the Yankees are better. When those two teams play, they're on another level in another world from other teams in sports. There is a brotherhood there, a kind of passionate respect that is what athletics are supposed to be. Problem is the Yankees finish first and the Red Sox second. Bucky bleeping dent. Uh, we should ask Peter who the friend was. Congratulate the friend. Give the friend his proper due after all these years. I think 
Bucky fucking Dan. We can't make that the afterball name. No, we should Bucky bleeping Dan. No, that the afterball should be what is your Peter Gammons' friend? <laughs> we need to give respect where it's due. What is your Peter Gammons' friend, Stefan? Well, there are two mysteries from that playoff game that have bothered me over the years. Both involve Bucky Dent's bat. Mystery number one, whose bat did Bucky Dent actually use to hit the home run? Let's listen to a clip from 14 back. We're going to hear from Bucky, then Lou Pinella, Mickey Rivers, and Willie Randolph. Mickey goes, hey, homie, you got the wrong bat. Bucky fouls that ball off his ankle, and Mickey Rivers tells him, Listen, uh, use my bat. Use my bat, he says. Uh, I, I got a good feeling. Say, bat boy, go grab the bat out of the hand and get Bucket his bat. Tell him he got a home run in. I just know that's my homie, so I want him to do good. And Mickey gave him that bat, that other bat. It had seemed to have some magic in it. All right, that's a nice, simple story. Bucky fouled the ball off his foot. Rivers told the bat boy to give Dent one of his bats because it was Wonder Boy. But it doesn't jibe with the historical record. In fact, it doesn't even jibe with Tom Verducci's SI cover story about the game in this week's magazine. Quote, light-hitting shortstop Bucky Dent belted a home run with Roy White's bat, which was given to him by Rivers, Verducci writes. All right, I went to the archives to resolve this critical historical discrepancy. Some accounts imply that the new bat was just another bat from Dent's regular stash. Thomas Boswell of the Washington Post, his game story quotes Dent saying that Rivers noticed a crack in Dent's bat and got him another model of the same style bat. The Hartford Current quoted Dent in the locker room. Mickey Rivers thought I had the wrong bat. After I fouled the ball off, he yelled over and said, it's chipped, you're using the wrong one, and he gave me another one. The It Was Rivers' Bat faction is mostly retrospective. It includes Pinella in the clip we just heard. Baseball historian Harvey Fromer, Dent borrowed a bat from Rivers. Dave Anderson of the New York Times, Dent's home run off Mike Therese, had been struck with one of Mickey Rivers' bats. And Steve Serby of the New York Post, Rivers gave his bat to the Yankee bat boy, who sprinted to the plate and handed it to Dent. Ten years after the game, even Dent told the New York Times, I'd used Mickey's bats before, so he gave me his. But hold on. In 1999, Mike Lupica wrote in the Daily News, Legend always had it that the bat Mickey Rivers handed him was one of Rivers' spare bats. Roy White said yesterday that it was one of his. Lupica made it sound like he was breaking the Roy White story, but Newsday's 1978 Gamer reports that Dent had been tired and slumping and, quote, had tried a lighter Roy White model bat, before the game and said he liked its feel. Rivers uses the same bat, but the one Bucky was using had a chip in it, Rivers said. Aha, so it was actually a Roy White bat that Rivers used that Dent tried out that day. Mystery solved. Not so fast. There's an even more convoluted version in Will McDonough's game story in the Boston Globe, which because it's convoluted and it's a string of direct quotes from Mickey Rivers right after the game, I'm going to say is the most reliable. In it, Rivers explains that he and Dent use the same style bat. The bats actually did belong to Roy White, but White didn't use them, so he let us have them, Rivers said. At noon on the day of the game, Rivers asked the Yankees' clubby if he had any more of the bats because the one that they, Dent and Rivers, used was a little chipped. The clubby found one of the Max 44 models. 
Rivers, quote, taped it up before the game the way we liked it, and I told Bucky I had a new one that felt good. He said he was going to stick with the chipped one. I was on him to change, and he wouldn't. I was even yelling to him from the on-deck circle that I had the bat with me. Finally, when the ball hit his foot and he was being treated, I grabbed the bat boy and told him to take the bat up and take away the one Bucky had. So everybody is right. It was technically Roy White's bat. He owned it. But he didn't use it at all. You can see in the film that White swung a black bat during the game, not a tan one. So implying that Dent homered with White's bat is kind of misleading. And the bat is also Rivers' bat because it sounds like Rivers did use it in the game. But Dent and Rivers used the same model. Rivers just used the one with no chip. So it was kind of Dent's bat too. Conclusion, this is the Al Capone's vault of afterballs. But here's mystery number two. Let's listen to a little bit more from 14 back in order. Luis Tiant. Fred Lynn and Mickey Rivers. And they told me they, they put some cork in the back. That's what they did. <laughs> Mickey Rivers told me. Remember Mickey Rivers changed the back? Those things happened in those days. <laughs> I'm not saying that they those guys did, but um, those things did happen. No, no cork in the back. Fucking just lucky. Just got lucky. I, I tell everybody this. Sometimes you got to believe, you know, I was just pulling for my homie. All right, so cork or no cork? In 1989, Mike Therese, who gave up Dent's homer, agreed to reenact the at-bat at the opening of Bucky Dent's Baseball School in Florida. I'd like to see if the little cheater can hit it out without the corked bat, Therese told the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel. Mickey told me two years ago that Bucky's bat was corked. Dent replied in the story, the bat wasn't corked. Mickey and I started that rumor. This checks out. A year earlier in 1988, a friend of Dent's brought the bat to the Yankees locker room on Old Timers Day. There's the bat, Dent said in the aforementioned Dave Anderson column, the one with the cork in it. Dent went on to explain that during the same event a year earlier, a summer that several hitters were suspected of corking their bats, quote, Dent and Rivers had joked that the home run bat had been corked. We were just kidding, Dent said, but some people took us seriously. Dent repeated the story in 2003 in a piece in the Wall Street Journal in which reporter Daniel Golden invited him to watch a game from the new Green Monster seats. A fan said to Dent, come on, it had a little cork in it. So what? Dent is quoted as replying, laughing. So what? Mr. Dent said laughing. Me and Mickey started that rumor. Conclusion, Bucky Dent did not homer with a corked bat. Coda, cork and bat doesn't do shit anyway. <laughs> coda, coda, coda. Josh, what's your Peter Gammons' friend? So I want to thank Rocky Lum for posting this on the Hang Up and Listen Facebook page and bring it to my attention. Um, Stefan, listen to this clip and let me know if you have any idea what's being discussed. He took eight contested marks, I think, tonight, but a lot of those are when he's on the lead, you know, and we, we sort of spoke to our players about, listen, don't let him lead at the ball, play in front, but, you know, I thought they blocked for him really well. The kicks that they do are incredibly smart, those three-quarter kicks, so they're hard to, for our backs to judge. You know, they, they, they came off tonight, those kicks. You know, he played a wonderful game. I thought he was B.O.G. tonight, an American, B.O.G. He was a star tonight. All right, I'm going to go with either Australian rules football or... Sipak Tara. Aussie rules. Yes. You got it. That was Damien Hardwick, nicknamed Dimma. 
the head coach of the Richmond Football Club of the Australian Football League. He was talking um, after his team had its 22-game winning streak snapped in the preliminary final of the Aussie Rules playoffs. They lost to upstart Collingwood. At the end, you heard him say that American an American was B-O-G, meaning best on ground, meaning the best player on the field. And that player was Mason Cox, a six foot ten dude from Dallas who was formerly a basketball player at Oklahoma State. Let's listen to Cox's highlight reel from Collingwood's upset win over Richmond. He kicked three goals and had eight contested marks. Both of those are apparently good things to have done. So Adams, Cox again. Oh, it's getting better. Oh, he's getting, getting bigger and better. He's staring at him. Can he do it again? You betcha. So a thing you can't see if you're listening to this, because podcasting is an auditory medium, is that this guy Mason Cox is towering over everyone else on the field, which seems a little unfair, but it's not illegal to be tall. Anyway, tall guys have not really been a thing in Aussie rules football, which is a sport that involves catching and uh, tackling and kicking. It's also the sport where the when you like uh, kick the ball through the things, the um, uh, ref does the finger guns, mm-hmm. right, Stefan? Right, I love that. It's it's mostly known in my household as the sport where the ref does the finger guns, um, but tall guys are now apparently a thing in Aussie rules because Mason Cox went to a tryout camp in California after he was done playing basketball at Oklahoma State. And I should say that Cox did not have a storied college hoops career. He actually started out as a practice player for the women's team. They wanted someone big to simulate Brittany Griner, who was then playing for Baylor. Uh, He then became a walk-on for the men's team where he only got in a few games in his career. He got to a tryout camp because he was spotted by this guy, Jonathan Giveney, who is an NBA draft scout. He now works for ESPN.com. Given he was contracted by Australia's AFL to find basketball players who were not good enough to play in the NBA, but who might be athletic enough to transition to Aussie rules football. So Cox had played soccer growing up. He uh, knew how to kick a ball, if not uh, an Aussie rules football. Uh, And he impressed enough that he got a contract with this team, Collingwood. In a first-person essay for the website Player's Voice, which uh, is Australian for Player's Tribune, apparently, Cox said, I used to be looked at as a project player, as this novelty who is only getting a game because he's an American. So I've had a bit of a point to prove. I'm not some guy who's going to come in for a year and you'll never hear about me again. My man has now been there for three and a half years, looking to get Australian citizenship. He was just named B-O-fucking-G. Thank you very much. Um, they're going to be in the grand final this coming weekend of Australian uh, rules football. He'll be defended by Tom Barris of the West Coast Eagles, who has this to say, because he's so tall and has such long arms, he can reach the ball at the highest point. Seems like good scouting. Mm-hmm. He's a quality player and he might lack a little bit of consistency as you do early on in your career. But he's shown everyone and silenced the critics. that He's a real force to be reckoned with. Good on you, Mason Cox. I'm totally on the Mason Cox bandwagon now. You've been reading while I was talking? Yeah. But you know what else? What? You know who one of Mason Cox's teammates is? 
2010 name of the year, Steel Sidebottom. <laughs> there you go. I didn't realize he was on Collingwood. He's a magpie. That is our show for today. Career magpie. Career magpie. The best kind of magpie to be. Uh, our producer is Patrick Ford. We got additional production help this week from Danielle Hewitt. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Baby, and thanks for listening. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.